making our way through Hebrews now, or Hebrews uh, chapter 1, we're at the beginning 1 through 14, we started last week in this, and well, this section 4 through 14, but we're going to particularly focus on verses 8 through 14 today. So let's find Hebrews chapter 1, and let's go to the Word, the, the Lord of the Word. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you love us and that you've written these things for us and that you have um, unsealed these things, that you've taught us how to read, and that you have given us your spirit whereby we might know how these things apply to our hearts. We pray that you would enforce them in our lives, that you would cause us to be more like Jesus from what we hear and that we would humbly bend the knee to you, that we would love bending the knee to you. As we pray in your holy name, amen. So just a word before we read the word. Hebrews was written originally to Christians who were under great trial. Uh, It was written to encourage them by explaining the excellencies of Christ. Um, his absolute supremacy and his sufficiency. And so those are things that Christians under trial need to remember, be reminded of. Um, that if we have Jesus, we have all we need for salvation. That in other words, that Jesus is in total control. So let's read the word of God. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times. In many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
pray. Or again, we pray that you would impress this on our hearts. Help us to not just hear it, but to have it change us. So we don't think as we ought. We don't act as we ought. We don't worship as we ought. Please change that about us more and more as we see the day approaching. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So again, in the verses 4 through 5, as we looked at more intently last week, that was where we saw the sonship of Christ, where Jesus is the son of God and son of man. So he's truly God and truly man. And we're going to see more and more what all this means for the church. And the things that God would have us to know by his Holy Spirit in his word, the things that he would have us to know about Jesus Christ. Because in the rest of this chapter, the Holy Spirit reveals to us clearly, for those with ears to hear and eyes to see, clearly that Jesus Christ is truly man and truly God, and that Jesus Christ is supreme king, and he is even creator. And so the name of the sermon today is Christus Rex, which means Christ King. Christus is the Greek word for anointed. It's the Hebrew word is Mashiach, Messiah. And so Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Messiah, Mashiach um, is Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at what it means to be anointed because it has to do with, with kingship. So verses 8 through 9 that we read today quotes Psalm 45. So let's just hold our place here, turn to Psalm 45. And when we find Psalm 45, we'll see that we're going to read um, 1 through 7. But the last two verses that we read, verses 6 through 7, is the actual quote that we see here. In Hebrews, and we know from Hebrews that what we're being told by the Holy Spirit in verse 8 of Hebrews says, Of the Son, he says this. So that Psalm 45 is about Jesus Christ. Don't miss it. Because when Psalm 45 was written, they were talking about an earthly king, but it was always, more or less, at times understood that the king was ultimately the type of their anti-type of the one that was to come the Christ to come which we see now is Jesus the son of God so this is foreshadowing the true king who would come and so we read this Psalm 45 beginning of verse 1 my heart overflows with a pleasing theme so get this emotional psalms are emotional so there's nothing wrong with emotions if you are an emotionless Christian you're condemned it's true you need to love these things. It's, there is emotion involved in this. Now, you can't read the Psalms without seeing that it is emotion. Um, now you can get all called up in emotion. And you can be overly emotional. But you can also be overly unemotional and be just harsh. But you can also be so emotional that you don't even know what you're talking about. So let's make sure that our emotions are driven after knowledge so that our theology serves our doxology and our doxology drives us deeper into theology so that you, what you know about God causes you to love him and your love for God causes you to want to know him more and the more you know him, the more you love him and the more you love him, the more you want to know about him. It's just you're all into this. It's a love affair. It's like if you ever started dating someone when you were in high school or something like that and you kept wanting to know everything that could be known about the person, um, this is 
the love affair that we're to be caught up in. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So this is a king. This is a warrior king. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And it's interesting, they put meekness. Blessed are the meek. And that Jesus Christ was meek. That he was a king. But it doesn't mean that does not include meekness. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the hearts of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. And here's the Hebrews passage. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Whose throne is forever? God's. And we look at Hebrews 1. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God is calling Jesus God. One of the clearest places in the scripture to go for the divinity of Christ. You can couple it going back to read the actual psalm and you see this is talking about God. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. God calls Jesus God. God the Father, calling God the Son, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have a Trinitarian theology worked out in scripture. They're of same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus Christ incarnates, becomes man, truly God, truly man. And this is what Hebrews deals with, is the fact that the Son of God in his essence became man. So when you see Jesus, you see God the Son. And God the Son says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They are united. And yet they exist in three persons. It's a mystery. There's nothing in creation that images it. There are things that come close, but nothing that images this. But what we are told is Jesus is God. He's also man. And as a man, this is what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is looking at. He's man, but he's God. It's very clear. Now, you can choose not to believe it, but if you don't believe it, you go against Scripture. So that's the thing. Is the Scripture authoritative or is it not? So your throne, O God, is forever. Back in the psalm. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So there we see God has a guide. It's weird. <laughs> Unless you understand the incarnation. So we're going to look at that. So these are the things that are important. First, oh God. Your throne, oh God, that's divinity, speaking of the Son, and that word in, there's different words for God in the Old Testament, Elohim is the word, actually plural, gods, um, in the beginning, um, God created, it's Elohim created, and so there's lots of talk about, you know, why is it a plural um, we understand Trinitarian doctrine, so we're like, well, there it is right there. Um, but also, El is the singular for God. And what we read in the Hebrews and in the Psalm, 
Hebrew is theos, but in the psalm, in Hebrew, it says your throne, El, is forever and ever. God. Singular. Which is interesting in and of itself, because he's not saying your throne, O Elohim, but your throne, O El. So, without... You have to keep the doctrine of the Trinity and there being one God in mind in three persons. So then why the singular use of the word God here and who, you know, did the Father die on the cross? No, the Son died on the cross. The Son prays to the Father. So he's not praying to himself. Um, but here, Jesus is called God. So we have divinity. You have to understand that. That's basic. Otherwise, we don't worship him. We might elevate him. But we don't worship him. So he has to be God. Or he can't have worship. So Jesus is God. And then secondly, we see your throne, O God. Throne. So what is a throne? A throne, and I'll look these things up just to make sure I have this accurately. A throne is the ceremonial chair for a king. It's the ceremonial chair for a king. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, do a sneak peek ahead, and we will begin in verse 14. We see this. Remember, we're talking about God on the throne in Jesus Christ. Since then we have a great high priest. All right, so we're going to get to this. Jesus is also a high priest. We're going to understand. We also said at the beginning of Hebrews, he's spoken through Jesus Christ, prophet. And now we see a priest. And we're looking at king. So prophet, priest, and king. So in his prophetic office as high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the... Is not an altar of grace. And that's where the priest would have ministered, served, was at the altar. It's where the priest offers sacrifices and praise to God. Now we will call this an altar, come to the altar. It's bad theology, in my opinion. And we're not going to the altar. Call the throne. You don't say anything, go to the throne of God. We go before the throne of God. Um, and what kind of throne is it? It's throne of grace. How can it be a throne of grace when it is a king of righteousness? And it's because the king is also the high priest who also sacrificed himself for us. His blood purchased grace. And so when we go, we don't go to a king and say, hey, or you know, say it like that to the king, you know, your majesty. You know, I asked for these things. Um, and he would say, you know, you know I always, I, you can't get out of your head the great and powerful eyes. You know, you're coming up to the throne. And you're like, you know, your knees are knocking. It's like, you know, why should I give you what you want? You know, it's like, uh, you know, just we're, we're asking you, bring me the broom of the wicked rich of the West. You know, it's like, okay, do something for me. Prove yourself worthy. I need you to do this. Because we know that Oz was fake king, fake guide. He was not on the throne, really. He appeared to be. And our king, when we go before him, is not going to ask us to do something for him. He's going to say, look what I've done for you. Come to the throne. 
He's out there calling people to come to him. Tell me what you want. Come into my presence. Bow the knee. Kiss the sun. Let you acknowledge who I am, what I can do, and you ask it of me. And if you ask according to my will, because my will is for your good. So if you ask for something that's going to kill you, I'm not doing that for you out of grace. So the no answers to our prayers is because of love. Just like if your child asks you, Mom and Daddy, can I please have a motorcycle? Son, you're three. I don't care. I want a motorcycle. No. An unloving father would say, hop on it, Sonny. We're going to strap you in, put it in gear, and watch you go. You know, you don't do that. And we think, well, that's a ridiculous analogy. Imagine the stuff we've asked God. Just, you, you can just, it, this is what's good about keeping a prayer journal. One, you can go back and go, thank you for not answering that prayer. <laughs> thank you for saying no. As though I prayed, 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 prayed for this. If I had gotten it, I see now it would have been terrible. But then you can also go back and say, I forgot I even prayed for that. And look how you've fulfilled it. Things I don't even remember asking for and, and you've given me. And then you also find things that you've asked for and you know you received. And you're able to see this too. It's a throne of grace. And that's what's the amazing thing about the cross. It's the amazing thing about the priest being on the throne. And he's king. So as priests, when we approach him, he understands and he sympathizes and he's provided the way to give us the things that we won't need. As king, he's completely authorized to do it. We don't quite understand kings. Um, we... we we used to because we fought against a, a, a monarchy to start this country. And, uh, and there were things put in place to keep, make sure. I mean, George Washington, they wanted to make him a king. He's like, no, you know, thank you, George Washington. Um, so things are put into place. And, and we have a system of government that was put in place by people who understood the, the, um, the depravity of man and, and, and tried to stop these things from, from happening from a king Becoming the ruler. But thank God we have God as the king and ruler. So as king. Particularly as the God king. He has the power. To grant grace. And to control all things. And in verse 8 again we read. Your throne O God is forever and ever. There's a promise. Second Daniel 7. Uh, God was talking to through the prophets uh, David and David was saying I want to build a house for you and he's like no you're a man of blood your son Solomon will build the house but I'm going to make you into a house someone will always sit on the throne there will, you'll never lack a descendant to sit on the throne so the kingdom of David is an everlasting kingdom Jesus Christ descendant of David son of God son of man the throne of his kingdom will be established forever. Unchangeable, immutable. Nothing's going to stop that. Nothing's going to change that. There's nothing that's going to stop Jesus from being king. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. I looked up scepter just to make sure I understood what scepter was. It is a ceremonial ornamental staff. It represents a king's sovereignty, an emblem of royal power. So this is the symbolic scepter. He holds forth the scepter, and it is a scepter of righteousness. 
It is a scepter of the kingdom. So he does not rule by mere power. He rules by righteousness. Now the word righteous there is it's hard to read my own Greek writing. Which means straight or level. So this is, you can see somebody straight shooting. Somebody shoots straight with you. That's this idea of righteousness. And that is the the power is based on righteousness. And he says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now the word here for righteousness is a different word than that word for scepter. Of uprightness is what the ESV says. Different translations use the same word, but dikaasene. And if you listen to much of my stuff, you hear the word dikaasene, which means righteousness. When you are justified, you are declared righteous. You are declared just. Justification is dikaasene. And this is the dikaasene that he loves. Righteousness. Being declared righteous in the court of law. There's laws that we are to obey. Moral laws in the universe. And he's loved that. I love thy law, O Lord. How I love thy statutes. You go to the Psalms and you read all of Psalm 119. is a love psalm to the law. The completeness of it. The wonders of it. The depths of it. The perfections of it. That we'd be in love with it. And hate wickedness. Which is actually the word um, ana, anamian. Which is lawlessness. Anamas. To be without law. I loved being just, and I hate he hated unjustness, lawlessness. His obedience was a loving obedience. He was good because he was good. He obeyed because he so he was. He was righteous because he loved righteousness from his heart. And therefore, as we're being transformed into the image of Christ, we will grow to love righteousness and hate lawlessness, the law of God, if we follow him. And we will love being subject to his rule because it is, remember, a throne of grace, a gracious rule, but it is a rule. So to reject Christ is to reject the true king and is therefore to be in cosmic rebellion, opposed to all the universe and therefore subject to his wrath and rightly and justly so. But because he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, it says next, he was anointed by God. But let's look at the anointed first. He was anointed with the oil of gladness. Now the method of anointing a king in the Old Testament was to pour oil on their head. And that was typically an, an olive oil. And so the way you get it was to press it. And what came out was the olive oil. So God is pressed. And what comes out? Gladness. And it is this oil that God is anointing Jesus with. It's the oil of gladness. It's not just because you're the one. Saul, you're the king. The people want you. Well, here you go. He was anointed with oil too. But David, meantime, is anointed king. The true king. It's the oil of gladness. God is very pleased that Jesus is on the throne. And look who has done it. God. Your God. 
So we see that Jesus is God and that Jesus has a God. And so that is explained in his incarnation by him becoming man. Because Jesus is truly man and truly God. Jesus is incarnate, begotten, not made, eternally begotten of the Father, but always in existence. And not eternally subjected, but in relationship. Where he subjects himself to the rule of the Father as a man. But in his perfection, they're equal in power and glory. So Jesus, in his flesh, worshipped God the Father as his God, as all men should. And so he did that. He didn't... He, Philippians talks about he did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but he humbles himself as a human and says, my God and your God, my Father and your Father. And on the cross, he cries out as he becomes sin, as the burden of the sin of the world goes on him, and he cries out, my God, my God. And what does he say? L. L. O E, which means my God. L O I. They're like, oh, he's coming for Elijah. Well, Elijah's name means the Yahweh is my God. So they hear him saying it in, in Hebrew, and they're thinking, oh, because there's a thing that Elijah's supposed to return. Here's Elijah returning in Christ, in a sense. But he says, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, which means he knows he's not forsaken. But he's in this situation. He knows he will be restored. But now we see the restoration. That the God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has been turned into, he's now been anointed with the oil of gladness. Because of what he went through. Imagine your son going through something horrific for you. And not just for you, but for other people. We're doing this, and, and we were talking to someone recently about, uh, I think, one of these theology, what we're we calling it, the Reformational Reality video, uh, podcasting. The question was, um, what kind of God will send his own son to die? It was a very good question, and the answer was, it's for a greater purpose. Um, you, it's like your son going off to war. Um, if you forced your son to go to war against his will, that might not be so good. But if we both agreed that this is what needs to happen and there's a greater purpose than to do this is sacrificial and loving in its purpose. And this is what God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit did. They counseled together before the foundations of the world that we might be saved by Him, that we might become a people who are um, redeemed by the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And since he's gone through this, and since Jesus has accomplished this, when it's time to anoint Jesus as king, man, it's all gladness. There's nothing being held back. There is no reason not to make Jesus king. This is the most, it's your son has returned. And he's wounded greatly for our transgressions. But he's head and, and been given a bride. Everything that could possibly be lavished upon that son will be done. We think of the, the prodigal who's gone out and spent everything on hookers and drugs and comes to his senses and comes back and says, 
just hire me as a servant. I've sinned against you, God, and against you. And the father receives him back saying, kill the fatted calf. My son was lost and now he's found. How much more the son that is not lost, but the son that went forth and did nothing but righteousness in the name of the father and, and had to have the father's wrath poured on him. And now he lavishes him with oil and gladness and brings many sons to glory. And sees, here's the son. Forgive them. They know not what they do. Don't let Satan do that. Don't let that go any further. Let it stop here. And the father shares the sentiment. It's, it's not a father. He would have to be wrathful if it were not for the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ would have been useless had not the father willingly allowed the substitution so that God has saved us from himself, for himself, by himself. So then these last, these next two verses here. Verse 10. And you, Lord, this is where the L again. Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth. This is from Psalm 102. Verses 25 through 27, if you want to look it up later. If you have a Bible with little footnotes in it or little references in the middle, that's a good thing to have. It, it gives you quotations or tells you where things come from. You, okay, again, this is but of the Son, he says, because it's and. So this is talking about Jesus Christ. You laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. There, another one right here, first chapter of Hebrews, Jesus is God. Even without John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And there was not anything that was made that was not made by Him. So you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens. So in the beginning God created what? Heavens and the earth. And so here He is. You laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus. This is Hebrews clearly proclaims. Creator God is Jesus. And he says this. Your creation is not greater than you. Your creation. All this is going to perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. It's created that way. Okay. Jesus. only reason it continues today is because it's being sustained by the word of his power. We've already read that in the beginning of Hebrews. There's going to come a day when he, like a robe, will roll them up like a garment. So it's not that it's just going to be gone away. There's going to be a change. New heavens, new earth. And notice who it is that does it. It is Jesus that does it. He's the one that rolls it up. He's the one sustaining it. He's the one that decides when it will end. And your years. But it says, but you are the same and your years will have no end. We call this the immutability of God. He can't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the creator God. He's the creator king. He's the, the high priest that was sacrificed for us. We go to the throne of grace. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He spoke all things into existence. He laid the foundations of the world with his fingers. He laid out the heavens. And he's going to roll it all up from the last day. And then there's judgment. And there's also new heavens and new earth. So what we see is... Christ in his power, in his person, in his permanence, 
Nothing could take Christ's life for him, from him. He had to willingly give up his life. Nothing can destroy the creation which he has created. But he will roll it up one day. The curtain will close. And that's it. And your day of death is it for you. I've said this frequently too, but one of the things when we were in, in Russia, people would ask, this is in the 90s, they would say, um, all the Jews are going back to Israel, and they say when they get back, because um, we're in the Birbajan Jewish Autonomous Region, anyway, so they, when they get back to Israel, then the Messiah will come and that will be the end of the world. When do you think the end of the world will come? And I had just started seminary, so I didn't know yet. And so I said, um, I don't know, which is still my answer. I don't know when the end of the world is going to come. Ian is quick to say, when you think it's about to be here, that's not it. <laughs> it's going to be the time you think, there's a peace, peace, all is well. Um, but what I did say was, you know, when you die, that's the end of the world for you. That's it. Appointed a man once to die and after this judgment. And I think, so why does God get into all trouble with saying there's going to be an end to all this? Why not focus on the day of your death? He does some, but there's a big deal about this is coming to an end. And I think it has to do with a couple of things, not the least of which is the fact that we never think we're actually going to die. So the thought of God's going to end it all one day is something to make us think, because he could come back at any time. I mean, a lot of people are like, he could come back at any time, but they aren't quite so sure about, I could die at any time. We, do we, we, we don't even live in the tension between these things. Um, but I think the other thing is, it's like, this has generational things to do with. This has, things are going to be set right. I mean, we live in a, you look back in history and you see things were awful. I mean, people today, it's like, is this the end of the world? Is this the end of the world? It's like, really? You think this is the worst it's ever been? You, you really studied history. And if you ever look back in history, and, that, and you can say that we actually, especially if we just look uh, American-centrically, like in our country, and we're like, this must be in the world. <laughs> really? I mean, we've got, this is a minor blip. This is going to be written up in history because of our reaction to it. But as far as stuff that's happened in the past, plagues and the, the flood and disasters, just historic things in the medieval times, I mean, People used to, we have antibiotics for certain things, we have medications, we have, <laughs> we live in the best of times when it comes to these kind of things. It's not that it's not bad, but it has been worse, and things will go from bad to worse, and who knows where we'll go. And depending on where you live, you can say it's as the worst it's ever been. So if there's any people in Muslim-dominated countries, uh, different countries where in North Korea, um, different places in China. I know we read persecuted church in China. Um, you know, are we still praying for them as much? You know, there's guys in prison in China that are in prison because they just stood up in front of a camera and preached the word of God. They went behind closed doors in a room. Not because you can't gather because you're going to get everybody sick, but because you're going to affect people with this blasphemous religion of Jesus Christ and you're going to cause people not to worship the, uh, the powers that be, you're not going to worship the government, and therefore, we're going to put you um, in jail. No trial. And these things, don't get me started, because these things can and will happen here too, sooner or later. Be prepared. And so when things happen, Jesus is on the, on the throne. He's throne of grace. He's in control. 
I can't, this is the phrase, large and in charge. There, I had to get that out of my mind because I did not want to say that. But his death was our release. And when we come to the Lord's table, he's saying, and it's for you. This is from grace. You don't see grace? This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant. In my blood, it's been shed for you. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you need to feed on me. You need to drink me. You need to be in me. You need to take this of supreme seriousness so that what the world needs more than a, a antidote for the virus is the antidote for sin which is Jesus Christ we must proclaim his name everywhere we go and that people need to become followers of Christ throughout the whole world and so we have to ask ourselves therefore Jesus Christus Rex King who is in charge of the world today who sits on the throne and it is clearly Jesus. But the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the Father will make all of Christ's enemies his footstool. Verse 12, he goes back now to kingship. And for some reason, for two verses, in the middle of kingship, he talks about creation. And I think as you read through the book of Hebrews, it's because you can't separate kingship from creator. You can't separate who he was as man from who he was as God. Remember who this king is we're talking about. The creator of all things. He rules over and is in control of all things. So we have complete victory in Christ as he will make, verse 11, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet and that last enemy to be destroyed is death he will have complete victory over all of his enemies including death and in the meantime in this present darkness in this cosmos in this world system this worldly system is ruled by the prince of the power of the air but he is a defeated enemy he rules over those who lay in deceit. He rules over those who live in darkness. He rules over those whose hearts have grown cold and resist the Creator, God, King. He rules over, Satan does, those who suppress the knowledge of God and their sin. And we're just told, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Kiss the Son and he will uh, rule over you. <laughs> Rejoice in what God has done and believe in Him. Don't give the devil a foothold. Resist him firm in the faith, proclaiming for yourself the blood of Christ shed for you, the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So then lastly, what about world governments? Because Jesus is king. We have spiritual government. So the worldly governments fall clearly under Christ's dominion. Psalm, Psalm 2, kiss the sun lest they die. The, the kings of this world gather up plans against the church. They gather up plans against God. And he laughs from heaven because he turns their hearts like water. And then our king tells us that this is what kind of people we're to be and how we're supposed to interact with worldly governments. He clearly says it. Hey, and I'm just preaching Hebrews. You know, this is why this has come up. One, pray for your rulers. 
that they may, so that we might live peaceful lives. We're to obey um, our rulers. Romans chapter 13 talks about this. Because they are God's ministers for good. They're his servants for good. But fourth, so first we're to pray for them. Second, we're to obey our rulers. Third, we're to obey them because they're set in place by God to be ministers for good. To do what he wants them to do. Fourth, our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. The King of kings, the Lords of lords. But be careful when you reject the magistrate. When we reject laws because he does not bear the sword for no reason. Daniel talks a lot about this. So we obey the government as long as the government doesn't tell us or attempt to force us to disobey God. But if you do decide that this is one of those instances, like if I were a doctor, a medical doctor, and I'm told if you're going to work in the hospital, then you have to perform abortions, and I'm not doing an abortion, then so well then eventually you could say, well, you're going to be in prison if you don't do abortions. Well, then take me to jail. But you better be careful because they can do it. Maybe even one day they may kill people for not doing abortions. We say, oh, that's ridiculous. <sighs> History again, people. History. It's not like people getting better. You know, I mean, these things are, <laughs> you know, we don't understand the influence of the Holy Spirit through the church in the world as being salt and light, and that is being on a decline. So, you know, don't be so... I think particularly in our country, we have a great love for country, a great love for government, a great trust in those who are in authority over us. And I think as a church, we have to be very careful how much love and obedience and trust we place in government because our founders did not have that same trust. So be careful. And Lord Jesus says, he's in control. We have a throne of grace. I don't think we're being persecuted today. I'm not calling for anybody to go out and do anything rebellious. The king is the constitution. We obey the king. And if we have rulers who disobey the constitution, then, you know, they have to answer to God for that. And so we pray for our rulers. We pray for those who are in authority over us. If we come to a time when we begin to bump up against rules, regulations, uh, laws, then we better tread lightly. He doesn't say not to do it, but he says, it's just like a parent. If you disobey your parent, and your parent says, you know, don't you go out and rob a bank for me. We need a little bit of money. Or cheat on your taxes. We need to do better. Or, you know, whatever a parent might tell you to do, you have to say, I can't, I can't do that. You have to figure out a way to do it respectfully. You have to figure out a way to be able to say, I love you. I didn't, but you can't, why are you like this? I can't do that. And so that's where we go, and there's lots of questions about where we are today, and, and do not, I'm rebellious. And if you don't think you are, you're lying to yourself. Some people rebel in their complicity. Some people are very compliant. But then it means a whole bunch of stuff that we're not complying to. So you have to be, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Follow the Word of God. Make sure you're doing what the Word of God says do, and then you're, you're safe. About drops the Word of God. So... We can boldly serve him without fear because he's a divine creator, God, and the rule will continue forever. Not foolishly risking our lives, but not fearfully clinging to our lives either, nor being so in love with this world that we can't bear to lose it. In closing, Revelation chapter 12. 
beginning of verse 7, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. I'm just going to read this little paragraph, 7 through 12. There arose war in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now! The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. That's just amazing. <laughs> He's been thrown down because of Christ. And they have conquered who? Those who were accused, our brothers. They, we, have conquered him, who? Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. I don't think we're there. I think we do not... I think we love our lives so much. That's why the world loves life. Even as it... But the whole reason for abortion is because they love life. Satan is wickedly twisted. We have to be careful. Verse 12. Therefore, since Jesus has come, he's released us from this. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you. O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And therefore, we must remember that God is on his throne. He is creator and sustainer. And when he's ready, he'll roll it all up. Until then, do what we're called to do. Love the Lord thy God, all the heart, soul, mind, strength. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is on his throne. God is in control. Our hearts must find rest in him. At the foot of the cross, at the throne of grace. Let's pray. King Jesus, remind us when we call you Christ. It's not your last name. It's your title. King we're to bow our knees to you. Help us to be respectful of authorities. Help us to love our enemies. Help us not to love our lives to the point of sacrificing righteousness. Give us wisdom in these things. We thank you that you love us, you care for us, and that you have accomplished all as necessary for the destruction of evil, for the rescue of your people. And we just pray that you would give us great love for you, great wisdom, great witness. We had to be careful if we pray for witness.
because it can come through persecution. It can come through accusation. It can come through disasters, fires, floods, and killer bees, or the things that can come at us as we withstand them in your name. A testimony to your might and your power and your rule. And that if you slay us, we still we wake up in heaven. 